ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, friends of all shapes and sizes, this is Shark Brain, the weekly podcast about creativity and those who are creative. I, Jake Newton, am your host. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for turning on and for hopefully not dropping out halfway through this thing. We've got a great show today. I'm not going to go into the specifics just yet. I'm just going to welcome you once again to this show. We've got a great run going. It's been an absolute blast making these shows, and I continue to thank you for your continued support. I continue. Do I say that? Who knows? Good Lord. I never thought that I'd be a radio person. Never did. Never had an inkling towards it. Never had a push. But I do like to yammer on about why we're here and why we make the things that we make and how we do it in the face of this manic and strange world that is pulling at all of our attention and trying to get us to find the rough median, the middle ground, the lowest common denominator, round off the edges and make it palatable like some sort of suppository to shove up the asses of the collective subconscious. We don't want to do that. We want to go out deep, dark into the woods. Find it. Pull it up from the ground, dust it off, and bring it into the village so that everybody can ooh and ah over it. Look at it as it emanates with its novelty and yet ancient wisdom, right? Right? I may seem a little bit manic today. As a matter of fact, I'm 100% positive that I seem manic this week, but it's just because I'm excited. I'm excited at the possibilities and at what's been going on these last few weeks. I've been pulling myself out of this miasma of depression, dragging myself away from the typical Jake rut that I have built within myself, which is to tour around on the social media networks, looking at other people's lives and wondering why mine doesn't look as good as theirs, wondering why no one invites me places, wondering why I'm stuck here at home, can't figure out why my next record isn't writing itself, watching way too much Netflix, navel-gazing, not even navel-gazing, to contemplate life took too much energy to just sit and be a receptacle for the funny ha-has coming from the boob tube. That was me. And I'm not saying I'm never going to get there again. I'm prone to that. It's what's in my makeup. I'm not going to sit here and pretend to say that I'm not completely a depressive person at times, because I am. I might not seem like it, to people who think that they know me, but in all honesty, yeah, I am. But I'm not going to let it define me. I'm feeling really good, guys. A lot of you who've been listening since the beginning are going to know, going to know that that's not an, <laughs> that's not necessarily the tone I often take. I like to fake it till I make it, and I, I'm having to fake it less and less these days, so it feels good. The schedule has just been absolutely chock-a-block full of stuff between songwriting with other people. Doing play readings, going out on auditions for films and television again, which I have missed. I won't lie about it. Filling in for people in their bands, playing instruments that I don't typically play. I've kind of just forced myself out of my head and, and given myself no time to sit and think, which there's a season for everything, right, guys? I'm not saying go out and achieve. I, I'm I'm reticent to do any of that uh compare and contrast that seems to be so popular with people these days. A lot of people are putting these memes up or whatever you'd call them, little placards that say, go out and fight and win and, you know, win at life, crush the competition of your own mind. It's, uh, listen, uh, we have to sit in repose sometimes, but there is a season for uh, mania for rapid fire, quick, on the go. Don't think it too much, just shoot from the hip kind of a vibe. And that's what I've been going through lately. And it feels great. It's not sustainable. I can't do it 365 days out of the year. 
because I'd have a psychotic meltdown. Anyone would, and people do. I don't think it's a badge of honor to just sleep three hours a night and endlessly devote yourself towards amassing money or success. It, do- it doesn't work. You become spiritually devoid of any real, I don't know what you'd call it, nutrients? Is that, is that, can, we, can the allegory stretch? Does that work? Don't do it. But if you're in it, take one bite of that elephant at a time. That's how you eat the elephant, and that's what I've been doing. So there's a few things that I want to tell you about. One, on March 4th, make sure, if you can, you turn on ABC. It's a little show called Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. that I have a bit part in. It's part of the Marvel Universe. It's a fun thing. It's, uh, it was a fun, fun role to play. It was quick, but it's fun. Uh, I'm, a, I'm encouraged, and uh, I just did the ADR last week. It looks good. It looks fun. It's, uh, it's explosions and, and, you know, pew, pew, yeah. It's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. It's Marvel. So it, that's, that's fun. Doing a play reading, but uh, I don't know what the deal is with tickets and stuff like that. I will put that, if that's available, I'll put that up on the site so you can, those of you who are in Los Angeles can come see me in a, a play about um, antebellum 1800s Louisiana. No, it's heavy stuff. But uh, it's good. It's good. I'm writing writing the new record. I'm writing other things too. Um, guys, It's uh, I'm, I'm just thrilled with what's going on. And I think I credit a lot of it to just sitting down with people of all stripes and kinds of creativity that have different processes about how they go about it, culling the ideas from them, bringing them in, sitting them down, having a really long conversation that I don't typically have in my regular life. I know you're listening to this right now, and it helps with your creative process. At least I think it does. I hope that it does. It's my intent to help you guys demystify a lot of what we wrap ourselves up in. There's a narrative that goes around, and I've talked about it before, and I'll continue to talk about it until I get sick about it, that we think that it should just come to us. And if it doesn't immediately come to us, if it has to feel like work, if we have to sit our ass down in a chair and eke the words out like blood from a stone, then we're not inspired and we're not like all of our heroes that have just built a narrative up through the press and various other outlets saying that, no, they were chosen. No, they were plucked from obscurity. And the muse, delicately like the feather in the beginning of Forrest Gump, dropped this song already written in their lap. And it was because they, being ordained by the gods of creativity, spoken from Valhalla, honey dripping into their guitar, were given such a gift, and we should just gather around them like moths to a flame. That's garbage. Okay? Yes, sometimes the muse comes. Yes, those are gimmies. You know what? You have to sit down and you have to write it out. If you're not feeling it, it doesn't mean that you don't have it. I spent seven hours writing a song two days ago, and I have to tell you guys... It's one of the best songs I've ever written. It took me seven hours, but I did it. It's not always so easy. Just because it doesn't come immediate to you doesn't mean that it isn't worth fighting for. And this narrative that we as artists, yes, I'm calling all of us out, this narrative that we try to put forth, saying that it comes so quickly, or that we were just born for it, or that we are endowed and created, and that that it's just so simple is doing a disservice to any artists after us. Let's demystify the creative process. Let's not make it some 
fucking package that's trying to sell your record, okay? It's okay to work hard for this. As a matter of fact, that's the real badge of courage. And I'm sorry I'm getting all soapboxy on this kind of a thing. I'm just so, so sick of reading in Rolling Stone about how two people just happened to answer an ad on Craigslist and then I just worked on this a little bit and boom, it came out and blah, blah, blah. I guess we have a hit on our hands. Oh, now I have to tour. I just wanted to sit here in obscurity and read Sylvia Plath books. Fuck you. It doesn't work that way. Writer's block happens. Things dry up. The well of creativity needs to be filled back up. Sometimes you have to wrestle the song away from the muse. They don't want to give it up so easily. And the fact that you have to work for it doesn't mean that you're not worthy of it. Also, let's not let that discourage us from having to dig in and make it happen. All right? Listen, I don't know why I'm getting so preachy, guys. I, I, I'm not typically the soapbox kind of a person. But I feel good. And I feel good having a veil lifted from my eyes. A lot of these truths are coming through just actually working through the natural grooves of depression and anxiety and fear and self-doubt that plague everyone as artists. And I think that, in many ways, the people who are given a megaphone, the people who are given a platform from which to speak, either forget or forego revealing the hard truths about this kind of a thing. They feel as though if they admit that they had to work hard or if they admit that things didn't come so easily that it would somehow invalidate them as artists, that they had to actually, I don't know, um, hammer it away from their subconscious mind instead of just being naturally off the cuff so great. We need to allow ourselves to fail. Whether physically, mentally, in any capacity, give ourselves the latitude to write a song that may suck a butt. It happens a lot. I've got notebooks full of them. But knowing to get through that song, to get through that play, to get through that monologue, to get through that audition, to get through any number of things, to get through that is to find the truth of something else. And then it will continually do that. You can't bat a thousand. It doesn't work that way. Sit your ass down in the chair. Do it. Just fucking do it, guys. It's amazing what happens when you just allow yourself the latitude to be a person and to express yourself. You don't need to have a hit song immediately from pen, from mind to pen to paper to charts. It's okay. All right? Okay. That's enough soapboxing. Let's Let's talk about who we have in the Shark Brain Labs today. We've got Bill Myers. Now, Bill Myers is a guy that I have a regular gig on Sundays playing at a church with. He is a great cat, phenomenal, phenomenal string arranger and piano player. He's one of the old school guys. He's about to say, I don't want to say his exact age, but it, it rhymes with mixty. Uh, <laughs> but he is, he has got great stories and we covered a few of them in this. But I cannot tell you how many times he's come up to me. He's like, oh, that reminds me of that time when fill in the name of musical luminary said to me, fill in incredible anecdote about life and music and a life of creativity. So I had to bring him into the studios. We talk a lot about what it was like switching from going out of college and getting into the the music scene that he was in in the 70s and 80s and, uh, and sustaining a life of of creativity and working with other people, helping make their albums better. You've heard his stuff. You might not realize it. Worked with Earth, Wind, and Fire. He did all the string arrangements on Papa Don't Preach. 
the Madonna tune? Yeah, that one. Worked on Justin Timberlake's Justified? He's... The guy's an incredible talent and an incredible guy. I was glad to have him in here. He's, uh, he's, he's a living legend. What can I say? He's amazing. So without further ado, let me take you to the interview with Bill Myers on the one and the only Shark Brain. Bill Myers in the Shark Brain Labs. This is it right here. It's kind of intimidating. Yeah, you know, it's all the books that, you know, half of which I've actually cracked. Did you rent these books? Yeah. I, yeah. You know what? I, I promise to read these books. That's... <laughs> yeah, I have some of those too. Mm-hmm. So, dude, uh, you grew up in Chicago entirely? Um, most of my, well, yeah, actually all my childhood up through um, almost the end of college. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what part of Chicago? Uh, We lived in a lily-white suburb called Elmhurst. Okay. Really cool place. And then I went, uh, eventually, when I went to college, uh, went to DePaul University, which is downtown. Mm -hmm. And uh, fortunately, I had a a playing um, grant due to to a competition that I won as a classical organist. Okay. Really? Yeah, I kind of, I got real heavy into into organ Mm -hmm. um, back then. But I got by when I got to school. I I took a jazz class and discovered jazz and went. What am I doing? You know, I don't want to play in a church the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And it completely turned me around in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. socially too, because all my heroes were suddenly African American, and a lot of the kids at school that that were really great blues players. Chicago has you know tremendous yeah, groove and mm-hmm. blues players. Kind of set me in a whole nother path, mm-hmm. you know, and. Uh, so um, it it I, I didn't meet one person of color while I was going all through my childhood and up through high school. Really, there it, were no African Americans to Chicago. No, well, it it's probably like Detroit and some other cities where yeah. where, where certain neighborhoods at that time. Mm-hmm. Now you know I go back quite a few years, um, but uh, actually yeah, I, I had one funny story where my my dad who and my mom are my best friends and my my dad especially. Uh, but he worked on construction as an electrician, and, and he was really annoyed that that uh, a lot of minorities were being forced in as apprentice without really learning how to mm-hmm. to know the craft because he took a lot of pride in it. Yeah. You know? Well, anyhow, I, I was doing a jazz uh, concert over the summer uh, from the school. It was a recital, and uh, I asked my folks, instead of spending money on a rehearsal hall, could I uh, yeah. have the guys come over to the garage, right, yeah. you know, or the basement? And they said, sure, you know, and I didn't tell them. So all these beat up Fords and Ramblers started showing up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom was like, you didn't tell me they were. I said, what, mom? You know, yeah. so, you know, she, she, well, how many are? I said, well, how many are you going to let in? You know, <laughs> and we went downstairs and it took like maybe 30 seconds. And my dad had bowls of potato chips. Uh-huh. And, you know, uh, you know, it was almost like a scene from E.T., you know, yeah. once you get to know somebody. Yeah. Um, friends that my, my parents to, you know. Till he died, you know, we're, we're just as friendly with, you know. Mm-hmm. But a funny thing happened. They went out for groceries and we were playing and I saw the car come back from the basement window. And as soon as we stopped playing, my dad opened up the door. It was in the summer. And he mm-hmm. said, uh, hey, guys, um, if you're through and you want a little dessert, I, I, I got some watermelon. <laughs> oh, no. <Dad. laughs> the entire band looked at each other and then at me, you know. And I knew my dad really liked watermelon. Uh-huh. He just, you know, went yeah. completely past this, you know, mm-hmm. this... Um, 
uh, awkward social uh, commentary, <laughs> right? And then finally, the guitar player took the pick out of his mouth, and he said, uh, no, but I'll take some fried chicken if you got it, right? <laughs> and I, I never let him forget that, but uh, uh, it was it was cool. Awesome. And, and yeah, you know, that, that sent me in a whole different direction. Mm-hmm. Well, it's... It's interesting, especially the you know the segregation back then and in those particular things, but and then being drawn towards jazz. Uh, where, uh, what was growing up? What was the music that was in the house, or was, was there music in the house? Well, yeah, interesting. My dad had a really great voice, tenor tenor voice, and he liked certain things. Mm-hmm. He liked Frank Sinatra. Yeah. He loved Nat King Cole, yeah. which was great because I got to actually. Um, do a tribute to Nat, and I got to meet his wife, and of course my dad was all excited about yeah. that. Uh, he liked Broadway plays. Um, and uh, so, what else? Henry Mancini fan, yeah. things like that. Like Border, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, rhythm and blues or jazz, mm-hmm. but he, he, my parents always came to everything I did, and yeah. really supported me, and he learned to enjoy what I found you know, exciting about that idiom. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of a little bit of both. I, I had influences because of my father, and then he kind of expanded his horizon you know, based you. on what I was doing. Okay. You know? yeah. And and were you always doing keys, or did you have any inkling toward anything else? Drums, bass, anything? You know, I picked up guitar a couple times, didn't quite get to the, you know, the uh, blisters, yeah. you know, get past the blisters, and I really wish I had. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took drum lessons for a real short time, and it didn't stick. Uh, and I wish I'd stayed with both. That yeah. is one of my. Uh, I, I know my songwriting um, would have been stronger writing on more than one instrument. Yeah. Um, but I did go back to school and studied really hard at UCLA, uh, both for conducting and orchestrating. And uh, so, I mean, I write for a lot of instruments. But no, my yeah. my gateway instrument pretty much is piano. Well, I I sympathize with that only on the reverse end of not being. I wish I was more into piano. Like I was just telling the piano tuner that came over and fixed my piano that uh, my left hand might as well just be like a snowman stick sticking out of me because I got. I just need the one. I got yeah. the one. Give me the root. I got the root. You know, right, and that's right. it. You know, it's like yeah. you know, if you position your fingers right, you can get the root and the fifth. That is so true. that whenever you want to go to five, you can just you know. Walk that is on. true. But positioning your fingers right, and I'm telling you, it's just that one stick, man. It's like it got everything else <laughs> fell off in frostbite, and it's just you'd be surprised. <laughs> When I was in college, I was um, I was doing a bunch of stuff. I was I was playing in a club three nights a week. I had thirty students, and then on Sunday I'd play church. And Jeez. a couple times I actually fell asleep in the middle of the service. <laughs> My head was on the keys. You know? <laughs> but uh, I had this cute little uh, Australian nine year old that uh, had big thick Coke bottle glasses. I'll mm-hmm. never forget this. And I taught her how to play a scale, mm-hmm. um, and I. Started the lesson, her father would always be in the room, and I went and get my usual cup of coffee. That would cut my lesson at 25 minutes mm-hmm. instead of 30. And then I walk in, and uh, she's playing these perfect scales going up and down, but her hand was folding over. So she'd, she'd go yeah. one, two, three, four, five, four, three, two, Whoa. backwards. The hand, you'd see the palm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she must have practiced this forever. And I said, Susie, what are you doing? I didn't teach that to you. And the father said, well, I thought it was quite logical, and I worked with her on it. Okay. So that, that's an, you could maybe investigate that, man, yeah. instead of the it could be yeah, That could be it, you know. And a it's, stick. It's a bit yeah. of a, a bit that you could do, like in Branson, you know, the, the backward playing man. You know, kind yeah, of exactly, thing. yeah. yeah. So. Oh, man. So after college, mm. you, did you stick around Chicago? No, I, I, got, <laughs> I got within 16 hours of graduating, and I was playing at a club. And there was a 
musician there that was dating one of the girls that was dancing mm-hmm. wink, in the wink. club. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, turned out his name was Ross Finelli, and he became one of my lifetime best buddies. And his brother, Gino Vanelli, a uh, real talented, amazing Canadian singer mm-hmm. that wrote a lot of his own stuff, um, kind of ahead of the curve. And this is like mid-70s. Yeah. So here I am limping through the five-year plan, and I'm 16 mm-hmm. hours away from graduating. And I'd given Ross, the, the younger brother, a copy of one of the demos I'd made while I was in school. Well, that somehow he gave it to his brother. His brother liked it, and he fired his keyboard player. And it was, as a matter of fact, it was during the Montreal Olympics in 76. Mm-hmm. And suddenly here I am at 22 and I'm getting a phone call uh, from his brother saying, I just fired my keyboard player. We'd like to fly up here to try out. Wow. And if, if you get it, we'd, we want you for a two-year tour and we'd record in England for Jeez. our next record. So I didn't have to think twice no. about this. Is, you know, I called my mom. Mm-hmm. So I'll, uh, They flew me up and I called my mom and uh, you know it was 800 bucks a week, all the money in the world. Oh, oh yeah. And I got nothing but that silence yeah. on the other end of the phone and my father and my mom said you mean you're not going to finish school you're not going to get your degree and uh-huh. and i tried to say hey, mom I, you know, i'll just end up in my bird cage you know yeah. I, I don't i want to apply what i'm doing mm-hmm. so that got that, that was a gift beyond anything this is a guy that eventually had a number one single while i was working with him mm-hmm. called i just want to stop and uh learned a lot and it was with A&M. I got a chance to meet Herb Alpert. I got to mm-hmm. meet Quincy. I got to meet a number of people. Yeah, That's how I met Earth, Wind, and Fire oh, wow. while I was working with him. Um, that started allowing me to play songs. And um, that got me out here to L.A. Yeah. Is, is coming off touring with him that I, that I toured with um, um, Lou Rawls, who had a yeah. big hit called You'll Never Find. And then I um, got to meet. Earth, Wind, and Fire. While that, I worked with David Foster, and David recommended me to um, Toto and Boss Skaggs and mm-hmm. toured with him. Off he he had a, a Grammy-winning album, mm-hmm. and it just kind of. I realized at some point my songs were getting placed. I was able to get some studio work as a player. It's time to come on out. Yeah, and that was like eighty-one. Yeah, and then and of course the weather doesn't hurt, and just and yeah, <sighs> man, yeah. tell me about it. Yeah. yeah. Um, we had the smallest house and the biggest driveway in Elmhurst, mm. and my dad was an ex-Marine, so I had to shovel everything. Okay, and, <laughs> good for you. Uh, yeah, people yeah. would say to my my dad, his name was Bill, also, and he'd say, yeah, uh, "Why don't you get a snowblower, Bill?" And he'd point to me and say, "I got one. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, I made one." <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So back then, it it, it must have just felt like like I mean, I mean as far as like eighty one and being uh, in the scene and being connected in the scene that. that <laughs> Was it just so much work just coming through the the weeds everywhere you could get it? No, not exactly. Um, Tours were. Yeah. I I had established the fact that I could could hang with these other musicians, you know, as a player. Um, And getting a couple of songs placed. I've always done a weird dance with with songwriting. I've I've been really fortunate. I have like seven songs that are on platinum records. Mm -hmm. And each time that it looked like there was one up for a single... That's when the publishing people would come after me. Yeah. Okay. I have some crazy stories with those folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would always go, no, it looks like I got the single. I'm going to renegotiate as soon as I get the big, you know, yeah, the, big yeah. boobed single, you uh-huh. know. And then it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. I've had singles, but I didn't, I didn't, you know, break, a breakout. Yeah. You know, I didn't have that number one or top 10. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we did that dance. Now, it would have gone differently probably if I had signed with a publisher and had a quota. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? 
Because I went a little different place, and I like pop music. One of the things I learned from talking to one of the people I really respected in the business uh, was a top arranger, and I said, like, what you know? What do you do? You know, because I know you have other roots classically. And he goes, "Why? Well, what I do is I fall in love with my songs." Mm. It's probably what an actor's process is, you yeah, know, when you have bit. to do a romance with somebody. Mm-hmm. And it's really true. If you don't hear the potential in in, in anything you're working on, mm-hmm. then you're not going to do it justice. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so uh, so I think you know that that's a process. It uh, I, I wasn't making. Um, I wasn't one of the top session choices, but I was in the game at least. Yeah, and that changed when when Earth, Wind, and Fire's leader Maurice kind of mentored me. Okay, because there was a point at about seventy nine, eighty where it was the Bee Gees and Earth, Wind, and Fire were yeah. the two largest selling groups at the time. Mm-hmm. So anything he did turned turned to gold. Mm-hmm. And this is right around uh, uh, September. When was that come out? With that, tune. that was in. That's when I met them in '79. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So. And then I had a couple songs that ended up on the I Am album, which sold. And I was a dumb shit. I yeah. I, uh, I had another song called Here Today and Gone Tomorrow that an incredible drummer Harvey Mason. I don't know if you've ever heard of Harvey Mason, but Harvey used to play with Herbie Hancock, and he had his mm-hmm. own deal. Played well all the top top yeah. acts. Well, he fell in love with this song a week before Earth, Wind, and Fire asked for it, uh-huh. and uh, and I thought. Well, I've got one or two songs on Earth, Wind, and Fire's album, and Harvey wants this. And of course, Harvey dangled all these incredible players, and he said, "Look, you can play the solos on it, and mm-hmm. I'm going to have these people." We had uh, all the top studio musicians playing on this, and Earth, Wind, and Fire sold about six million records, and Harvey sold sixty thousand. <laughs> okay, yeah. And as a one of those silly youthful mistakes, because. If that would have been front and center, I was playing on that. It was my song. Mm-hmm. Um, that could have changed the arc of my career. And you know, I, and we all do this. I'm sure we all look back mm-hmm. at points in our life where I would have done that differently. Yeah, hindsight is twenty twenty, so to speak. You know, but there's a confidence when people start picking your song. Then and behind that, um, I get a call from Quincy. He wants to meet mm-hmm. me, and he used the song for Rufus. And then later, I worked with him on his own record, and also on. Donna Summer record that mm-hmm. I co-wrote a song with um, Richard Page mm-hmm. from um, Mr. Mister. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you have that confidence. Oh, people like what I'm doing. Yeah. And it'll be the next one. The next hit, it's going to be the, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. We have that that hope springs eternal. Absolutely. you yeah. got to have. You, you have know, to be a little something. delusional and, and feed that fire to be able to, like, you know, push yourself, you know, like ever, like erring on the side of, of positivity because, Kind of hard to just get kicked, you know. All it really is, yeah. and I think I think what saved me is that I I kind of um, I could play. I was writing songs now. Um, I was doing arrangements, and uh, again, Maurice has been front and center. You know, my first song, my first group I produced was The Emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, my first movie I did was Armed and Dangerous, along yeah. with him. Uh, my first horn arrangement. That that of note was he gave me an opportunity to do horns on uh, Let's Groove, mm-hmm. which became a number one single. Oh, wow. And uh, then that's when it really started for me um, as an arranger. I started being requested. Mm-hmm. Um, so Maurice, uh, you said that he shepherded you along and then kind of mentored you. What exactly was was that process like? Uh, Just working. Well, for with example, him? I mean, he had me playing and offering songs, you know, uh, playing within their rhythm section, and then. He could just tell from things I'd worked on or demos I'd produced. He says, you can, you can write for horns, yeah. you know, huh. you hear it. And he was unique. He would, he would actually hear lines, you know, uh, 
you know, he had it all in his head. Hmm. Um, and he'd sing something, the start of something, and he'd go, you, okay, you developed that. Yeah. And it really inspired and Of course, the, there were terrific arrangers, uh, Jerry Hay and David mm-hmm. Foster was working then with those guys. Um, so it inspired me. Yeah. You know, I really, really loved it. And it was the same thing uh, in 84, 85. I was fortunate enough that one of my friends from Chicago, Pat Leonard, um, invited me to come on Madonna's tour. Mm-hmm. And this was when she was just breaking. Yeah. And uh, she became a, a friend, and, and there was a lot of wild stuff going on in that tour, but because um, it was just, just exploding mm-hmm. for her. But when she came off tour, she'd heard some things I'd done and asked me to do the strings to Papa Don't Preach. Yeah. Well, that one went number one, obviously. Yeah. And I ended up doing five singles for her with strings. And then mm-hmm. from that point on, um, I got a lot of work as a yeah. string and horn arranger and rhythm arranger. Yeah, well, she was white hot in like right the very center of culture. It, it, yeah. yeah. I mean, she, you know, she, she had, she had kind of like a Prince type first record, which was, you know, they said, okay, there's some momentum. And then the second record blew mm-hmm. up. By the time she did Like a Virgin, which was her tour, the Virgin tour, mm-hmm. which we always joked about, how could that be? You know? <laughs> um, that's mm-hmm. that's when, you know, it really went through the roof. Mm-hmm. And uh, so for a good 20 years, mm-hmm. um, it was it was very lucrative. Yeah. You know, I've, I've got about 40, uh, 45 top 10 singles and 11 number ones mm-hmm. as an arranger. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know you get complacent behind that. You think this is always going to be the case. Yeah. But I did go back and really learn how to write to picture, and and I've always wanted to write to film. Mm-hmm. So that was another. So I think what saves me is is even when I'm slow is there's different facets of what I do that I can draw from, and, and under the best circumstances, if I'm producing something, I can hire me as the arranger, mm-hmm. me as the player, me as a songwriter. Yeah. You know. Um, now, That's probably been my saving grace. Yeah. Now, when you went back to UCLA, when was that in the timeline? That was uh, late eighties. Okay, yeah. So right about the time that you mid, started, mid to late eighties. Right yeah. about the time the Madonna stuff is really getting you out there, and you're picking up. You're kind of feeling like I. Should... I did two stints. I took extension courses, and then later, I actually I taught at UCLA. Really, extension. Wow. On on, on arranging. Mm-hmm. Okay, studio arranging. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, man, that's a great program. Yeah. I mean, the year that I got asked, I think that was in 91 or 92. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 92, I think. Uh, I did. I could only do it for a couple quarters because I was losing money. Mm-hmm. And I realized that UCLA only had a stupid cassette machine in my classroom. So I invited the entire class, was about 15 or 16 people, to my studio where I had my office. Mm-hmm. And the studio let me use for a couple of their projects. You know, mm-hmm. um, uh, They'd have to pay extra money to bring in other musicians but it was great it was yeah. and i always worried about this because you and i have that that little mischievous boy in us yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, even when we're playing at church on mm. sunday um i never wanted to teach because i always thought i'd get students that were like me yeah i really really kind of shied away from wanting to do it yeah you, so and, you didn't want you didn't want to like you, you didn't want to break the spirit because it felt like you'd be betraying that thing in yourself by having well no just like, the, imagine how tough that would be nobody's listening but of course i didn't realize that when you get to college age or older, you're mm-hmm. there because you want to be as opposed to have to be. It's elective, yeah. You know, and it's it's the most rewarding, you know, I, I, I've made friendships from those two quarters that I taught there mm-hmm. that I still have. And uh, it's something I really want to pursue in the future. Uh-huh. Well, that's, it's really good I, I as far as teaching goes because, um, A, you're, you're 
spreading the the wealth and being able to like you know show people the thing and it's really cool but it also I, it reminded me whenever I would do it I, I, it's been 10 15 years since I've taught anybody but uh, it, it reminded me the why I liked doing it have and you done it in a classroom setting I haven't done it in a classroom setting yeah it's yeah. it's it's pretty cool yeah especially when they're there because they already they like what you've done mm-hmm. and they they want to get what you know yeah. what you have they want they they want uh not only feedback you know and criticism to some extent yeah um validation mm-hmm. you know that they're on the right path and uh, it, it's it's a really cool experience it's interesting I, I wanted to ask you about the uh about writing to film because uh, i i've only done it a couple of different times uh, mm-hmm. but like to short films and that stuff so i didn't really have too much to deal with the workflow wasn't crazy but i also would i'd i'd bring it into my like pro tools and then just look at the picture and then literally watch and time it immediately but it beyond that there's i i know as every time i've done it I'm like there's an art to this and there's rules that i'm not doing and i'm i'm going the long way around yeah no. but i think you got the essence of it right there yeah um a lot of people are too busy. I've watched people from the pop side write songs, and mm-hmm. they think, "Wow, oh, this is a great song, and it's working against." It. Not really. Mm-hmm. You've got to think about things like, um, "What's the frequency of the voice? Are yeah. they are they loud? Are they soft? Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you stay away from?" A lot of times, it's what you don't use mm-hmm. to to still get your point across. You know, what's the real emotion that's being played here? Um, what's the right time to start and stop the cue? Mm. You know, those are the things you kind of learn, I think, as you go along. Yeah. And uh, and do you feel better about the scene with without the music or with the music? You know, mm-hmm. sometimes it's like, you know, no, we're, we're sending this the wrong way. Yeah. You know? So, um, but I think it really just gets back to, you know, what, what emotionally has moved you about the, that. And, of course, you need, and there's a lot of politics involved because mm-hmm. you might – have found something brilliant and the director's an imbecile. Mm-hmm. And have you had any crazy stories like that? I, yeah. Without, I, without indemnifying somebody, you know? Um, I can, I've got a better illustration than one of my own. Mm-hmm. I've been kind of fortunate. Most of the people I've worked with ultimately, you know, have been okay. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, I'll tell you my first experience. I can yeah. tell you this. There, you, sure. There's a sort of a, um, a kind of a uh, test of fire. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's going to make you determine whether you really want to do this or not. And I mentioned Maurice White. Maurice White got asked to do the score to a John Candy movie called Armed and Dangerous. I love that movie. 86. So he said, hey, Bill, I want you to do it with me. So here, I haven't scored a movie yet. Maurice... For all practical purposes, for film, you know, thinks strings are for balloons, you know, <laughs> and we're like, you know, they're looking at it kind of sideways. They yeah. want Maurice for for a hit song at the end of the movie more than yeah. anything else. But they're going to take a chance. Except the movie wasn't real funny. Yeah. They kept changing it, and we had a director that that was a pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, the producer was a great guy. It was James Keach, and mm-hmm. he he was a nice liaison. So anyway. They, they kept recutting and recutting. So we're like three weeks to go. We've got to do an entire album and the score, which is at least 45, 50 minutes. Jeez. And we haven't started. We haven't got what's called locked print. If, if, if those of you that don't know this, music's generally the last thing that you do mm-hmm. to the movie. Um, and if you think about it, uh, it's probably the only real thing. You uh-huh. know, people are acting, foley, voiceovers, sound effects. Mm-hmm. The music's the only real emotion you're yeah. going to get. Okay. So I remember going to the uh, the screening, 
And they were still changing and editing. And we were trying to take notes. And the director and the producer pulled us out and said, look, we're going to make a change here. Um, Maurice, we just want you to only do the soundtrack. Um, we just called um, Corfane and Schwartz, which is the big uh, Darth Vader of mm-hmm. agencies for film. Uh, and we're going to have uh, James D. Pasquale do the score mm-hmm. uh, along with Billy. There we go. By the way, Earth, Wind, and Fire used to call me Billy. I, I felt it was uh, uh, the black equivalent of boy to <laughs> you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and they said, You're the glue. You're going to work on both the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. And the score, mm-hmm. you know, we'll give you about 40% of the score. Bridge that gap, yeah. And I thought, okay, fine. That's a great first step here, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, and all I asked was that I got a credit. Yeah. You know, it didn't have to be the front credit. It could mm-hmm. be additional music. And, mm-hmm. and I would love that. Yeah. So we started in. Remember, we only got three weeks. Yeah. Well, there was literally about a week and a half to go, and I'm approaching the end of my kids busting my hump Mm -hmm. i mean you put in when you work on a movie and there's a time limit you're you're there you're working fit 18 hours a day yeah you know yeah you can bring a sleeping bag and you know maybe get two or three hours a night yeah which you'll see it got worse so i um get called by my lawyer and he's real expensive Mm -hmm. from uh, his name was richard lair and richard called me to telling me that i just received the contract and uh uh and schwartz put that if their composer gets more than 51 percent of the score no one else get credited I said, oh. wait, they all told me that that's that, you know, yeah. forget it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to turn in my score. Then that's it. You know? Yeah. Well, that got everybody's attention real quick. I bet. I got calls all over the place, including mm-hmm. Maurice, who I found out had been told this, but didn't, yeah, didn't, didn't back it. me up yeah. and didn't let me know. So I'm furious. Yeah. I got a head full of steam and mm-hmm. okay, forget it. You don't want to get my score. Mm-hmm. Well, the head of music called me, his name Bones Howe. And he said, Bill, if you do this, you're never going to work in town again. Oy. If you're going to hold up a picture, that's a $20 million picture. Yeah. And this is back in the eighties. Mm-hmm. So serious would be a lot more money now. Yeah. He said, you know, why would you do that? You know, if, if we'd called you and said, we want to start you out and test the waters, would you have taken this? And I said, yeah, but you gave your word. Mm-hmm. Everybody gave their word. You know? <laughs> and that's about what he did. He laughed. Yeah. 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 So he said, we got to let me know by the end of today. Yeah. So, of course, I put my tail between my legs and said, I'll just finish. Yeah. I'll turn it in. Well, two days later, (laughs) unbelievably, (laughs) James D. Pasquale had written about, um, I don't know, 25% of the score, maybe 30% of his score. And uh, uh, Bones calls me and says, did you get a voodoo doll or something? I Mm -hmm. said, what are you talking about? He said, did you stick pins in, mm-hmm. in a, a doll? He said, well, James has a pinched nerve in his neck, a sciatic, and he can't pick up a pencil. So he's going to have to leave that mm-hmm. part of the score, which means that you now have the major part of the yeah. score. Okay. Oh, wow. So I'm like, oh, good. Okay, fine. There we go. Things work out. Yeah. So you can imagine working on a soundtrack while I'm doing the score. I'm, I'm completely fried. We yeah. get to the final cues. And I had one long, long cue that had the full orchestra. Mm-hmm. They were giving mostly synth cues. Yeah. But I got, I held out for one chase scene and it came out great. Mm-hmm. I knew a lot of the musicians from the pop musicians I worked with and they clapped. I heard the other guy who was filling in for Bones that took the, and he's a nice guy. He's Mike Melvoin. He's Wendy, at least one of the two, uh, his, their, their father. But it, it sounded dated. Yeah. And, and they heard that. Yeah. And in classical, film fashion they just tossed his stuff and said suddenly look we're going to throw everything out can you can you do 20 minutes in a week golly you know we'll give it to you and i really thought about it and i said geez you know this is kind of like playing uh, let's make a deal yeah you know take the cash or what's behind the door mm. 
And I thought, I'm already the lead composer. Mm-hmm. I already have the, you know, the soundtrack stuff, including, you know, in title song and mm-hmm. you know, all that kind of stuff. I think I want to rest, you know? Yeah. And they, you know, they called me back three times. And just yeah. said, do you realize, you know, if you do this and pull this off, you're going to look like the greatest hero in the world. And mm-hmm. please. Well, I said, all right, come, you come to my house. So now suddenly the very people that had kind of cut me before yeah. are at my house. Now, remember, I got to do it in a week. Yeah. And they came up to my house and just, and, you know, they Laid quoted me out. one price. And then the next day I was told by Bones it was half of what that, I think it was 10,000 to do 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly he said, you know what, I got 5,000 for you. And if yeah. you don't turn it in on Friday, then we have to deduct how much longer, <laughs> you know, which means you'd be working for nothing. Golly, so, yeah. So I started out on, on Sunday mm-hmm. and I was getting maybe three hours of sleep Jeez. until we went to the studio and lived in the studio on mm-hmm. Wednesday. Because you remember in those days, you have to put it down. Yeah. There were no home studios. Yeah. And I just would take like 15-minute naps. Mm-hmm. And it was due on Friday. And I remember at 1 o'clock on Friday afternoon, I, I turned in the last cue. And I, I was just – anybody that's gone through some sleepless nights like yeah. that, you know, you're, you're, you're almost in another world, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, I, it took a long time for me to um, kind of grasp what had happened. And they called me and told me, great job and everything. We made our deadline. Mm-hmm. Um, they also told me that I could come in and we'd talk about the next picture. But yeah. I think Bones had egg on his face for the guy he'd recommended. And he never recommended me for another film. Oh, man. And then you, you say to yourself, well, do I want to put myself through this again? Yeah. It's all torturous. the backstabbing, all the lying, mm-hmm. the unbelievable pressure and deadlines yeah and i had to look in the mirror and go yeah yeah maybe the next one would secure me Uh but i loved the experience yeah despite that Mm -hmm. it's it's definitely uh navigating a jungle of sorts and you've got to figure out like where you sit in the thing and how to like stay out of the infighting and and some people some people are really good at at being the puppet master so to speak and other people are really good at being teflon you know they just all that stuff just slides right off and those are the two archetypes i think that seem to work especially in the business of film and that kind of thing yes you either come out smelling like a rose and everything you turn in is you know really well done and you got a great batting average or you can be a little mediocre and then play the puppet master now you obviously be in the former you're forced the to be mediocre at times yeah it really because you're at the you're at the mercy of how they're going to edit the film mm-hmm. and and the level of your music that's another thing. I mean, I've done films where the, the music is just a, an ugly rumor. It's yeah. like you, don't, you, don't, you don't hear it. You hardly hear it at all. Yeah. And it's lost its power. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I, I've run into, and everybody else does too, that's, that does it after a while, is that you have guys that are frightened that their film isn't any good, and they want wall-to-wall music. Oh, yeah. And that's the very thing that ruins it. Think of, mm-hmm. think of music in a film as the spice. Yeah. So if you overly season, your taste buds are shot, and yeah. after a while you hear you know way too much music, and you've lost your your mm-hmm. sense of being moved by one moment. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know. it's um, like it's like eating sugar. If you have a whole bag of it, then if you have a little bit of it, I I completely understand that, man. I I I don't know that they're. It's it's the perfect when it's when it's hitting the right spot and when it's the right thing it's it magic your, your emotions just fly off and you know there's there's songs that I that make me I can hear thirty seconds of a of a soundtrack and then remember the entire film and yeah. then have such a deep and connection you're right it, it's it's an, when when it's done right yeah. you know um, and I have to say I've, I've been so blessed um, I, you know I've been an artist myself I've done three of my own records and then one of them was. Grammy nominated. It was done direct to disc with a large ensemble of oh, great wow. musicians. 
Um, and I've toured with some of the biggest acts in the world, and that's been a great experience. But after a while, particularly the biggest acts, you know, you've got a 20,000-seat venue, and you're looking out, and it's just a sea of, of indistinguishable faces. Yeah, You're playing exactly the same music because everything's timed mm-hmm. with lights. And, so many moving parts. And, yeah. and, and the hardest time was maybe just first assimilating, singing, playing, making, um, you know, changes yeah um in in the rehearsals Mm -hmm. and then it's you know but man there's something about working with by the way la has the most incredible musicians Mm -hmm. um and when you're working at a film level with a lot of people i can't describe the feeling when you've written something original and you're hearing it back with these amazing musicians and it's marrying to the picture for the first time yeah it's it's like for me that's it's just that's an ultimate high. Yeah, it's transcendent, man. It's it's church. It's it's the it's I, I for me when that happens. So like when when that happens in various different things, you know, playing live and you get that moment. You know, if you're if you're you've on the connected, fly, you've connected, and you're con- and you're just getting into the you know what Jung called the collective subconscious. You just feel like you're tapping into something and it flows right through you. It's amazing. But and you, see, you're the artist when you're doing it too. Yeah. When when you're backing somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want this to creep in, but but after a while, it's kind of oh man, it's the same thing again. It's the same thing again, and I got bust. It's funny because I mentioned this, this. This album was called Images, and that I did the. Um, on one side, I used sixteen of the best horn players in town, mm-hmm. along with a full rhythm section and top people from Weather Report, Larry Carlton, Ernie Watts, yeah. Vinnie Colaiuta from Sting, and these amazing players. And then on the other side was a twenty-six piece string section. Damn. And I was working my butt off, practicing harder than I ever had in my life. And here I am doing a Madonna tour mm-hmm. where I'm playing like a virgin. I get to play bink, bink, <laughs> bink, bink. You know, and one day I tried to start playing the bass part, and the bass player also played synth bass, and she mm-hmm. wanted that sound. And he said, get off of that. That's my part. You know, you want to get me fired? You know. <laughs> and I remember, uh, you know, just contemplating this while we're doing this, this stupid song. I hated the song. Mm-hmm. And I'm playing, you know, with my my right hand, and I had a Coke, you know, on the on my on my console, so I drinking some Coke while I'm playing, and then I would put that down and switch to my left hand playing mm-hmm. Bink, Bink, and I had some beer nuts on the other side, so I was eating those. <laughs> and she was dancing, and she turned around and looked at me, and she got furious, and she uh-huh. said, "Can you at least look like you're interested, asshole?" And I was like, "Okay, I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> I, okay, busted." You know? Oh man! So funny things go through your head, yeah, and. You know, if you can keep the experience inspired, I think that's, you know, if you can do things that motivate you to be better, mm-hmm. then you're really winning. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's such a gift that we get to do this and fly a little closer to the sun yeah. than the average job. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, it, it is definitely a weird subset that we work in. You know, like uh, they're just, just being around these mystical people almost, you know, they, these the, these zeniths of culture that yeah. you kind of go like that will be written down on the zenith the, in the record books. You know, like the the guys that worked with uh, Frank Sinatra would be like, yeah. And then I was I hung out with Frank today. He showed me his new car. <laughs> and other people, other people have no idea, and they, they think, well, you know them, so we're all set, and we just don't worry about anything. We live in this. Uh, I have a Frank story. Life. I have a Frank really? story. I never got to work with Frank. A couple of my friends did. An amazing piano player, one of the best piano players I've ever heard in my life. Randy Waldman toured with Frank. Um, but no, I was playing with Lou Rawls, and uh, that was a funny guy. He had an yeah. amazing voice, but not the brightest guy in the world. Oh, really? Um, I'll tell you a quick Lou story because it's pretty funny. Uh, so we're playing in in Vegas, and by the way, it was a golden time in Vegas because mm. it wasn't the 
the sick uh, family Disneyland mm-hmm. gambling mess that it is now, where it takes an hour to get a cab mm-hmm. coming out of the. You know, in those days it was people that were there that were you know it was adults and it was also people that either came for the shows or came to gamble. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was a different. Mm. Style, you know, just the coffers open and money pouring out, yeah, by just you know, with less people, yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. and um, I never got into gambling, so I didn't lose every paycheck. But uh, we were in the middle of doing you do two shows at these big hotels, and mm-hmm. we got told, Jump in the limo, we're going to the sands, we were going to do some benefit there. They didn't tell us anything, but mm-hmm. so we went to the sands and we were going to do lose hit, you'll never find, and um. Uh, we're standing there, and I hear a curtain kind of rustling. I'm kind of behind it. I'm peeking at the main stage, and I'm hearing somebody swear, mm-hmm. get the fuck off, get the hell out of here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then suddenly the curtain like gets pushed back, and I'm face-to-face with Frank Sinatra. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and I go, Mr. Sinatra, it's, a, it's an honor, man. How are you? And he goes, uh, fine, Sonny, who are you with? What are, what are you doing here? I said, I work with Lou. Oh, Lou's the best, man. Lou's the best. Mm-hmm. I said, no, sir, you're the best. Mm-hmm. And he patted me. I patted right. me on the shoulder and I said, well, how are you? And he goes, I'd be fine if that jerk would get out there. There was a comedian up there and he was mm-hmm. taking too long. I, I, I want to say Shecky Green, but it wasn't. It was oh, another, yeah. one of his opening act guys, mm-hmm. you know. And, and the guy, it was a wonderful perspective because here's the comedian facing the stage. We're mm-hmm. like, 90 degree angle mm-hmm. at him and frank goes back and he's saying get the hell off the stage and you could see the guy sweating and oh. kind of peripherally aware of frank and then yeah. frank finally just turns to the orchestra and says, start playing oh damn and they start doing playoff music and this guy's i gotta go <laughs> oh, so man. i mean that, i'll treasure that you know yeah. I, I i didn't get to work with him but I, I was standing there with him you know i can't imagine the heat that that would feel the chairman of the board is telling you to get off get off the stage yeah. oh, you could feel you could feel his heat and you could also tell he wants to be a good guy too yeah. you know mm-hmm. um i mean it was for the right purpose and mm-hmm. all that kind of thing mm-hmm. uh and he loved lou they he would come see lou's performances and mm-hmm. Uh, when I first started with Lou, one of my friends that was also already in the band um, got me in, and, and, and I remember we played at Tahoe. He, uh, Lou did a completely different circuit than most of the other acts I'd worked with, and mm. I just got through working with Boss Gags and Toto, you know, yeah. so it was a completely different venue, mm-hmm. different type of music. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I remember the first day, it was our first show, and the, the guitarist, really good guy, I, uh, Dennis, I forget his last name, but... I said, uh, how is it? How do you like the, you know, the show? He goes, oh, it's awful. <laughs> said, well, why is it all? He goes, man, you can't hear yourself. He says, Lou's got his girlfriend doing the sound. What? And, uh, you know, you can't hear yourself in the monitors. It's mm-hmm. awful. You know, you're going to hate it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, I can't have that. I got to hear myself. Yeah. Man. So I suffered through the first set, and he was right, man. All mm-hmm. you heard was Lou's voice, you know, oh, wow. and it got worse Blasting. and worse and worse. So we're doing the hit now. It's the end of the show, mm-hmm. okay? It's his encore number, and the only thing I got going for me is that he sings, You'll Never Find, and I go, da 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 dum bum ba ba da and he wants to hear that. Mm-hmm. So I get a bright idea. So I played the best I've ever played, where you can actually push the keys down, but they don't make noise. Uh-huh. You can do that if, yeah. you, if you work it out. So he's, you'll never find that I'm, you know, <laughs> and he's looking at me, and and I'm pointing to my hands, I'm, and he's like, he can't hear it, right? So we get through the song, and I knew he was mad. He got a standing ovation as soon as the curtain closed. He dro- he throws the mic on the mm-hmm. <laughs> on the floor, mm-hmm. and he goes down to the dressing room. Mm-hmm. And we're coming downstairs, and I hear him yelling at his girlfriend. You oh. know? 
Mm. Bitch, I pay you all <laughs> kinds of money, and you, I, I want to hear that piano. You know what? Uh, so then the next set, I was just piano and, and Lou and the, <laughs> the guitar player. Everybody else in the band hated me. Right? Of course, you, know? you, you made the work around. I man. worked it. I made it work. You know? Oh man, that's right. glorious, dude. Hey, you got to with with that kind of politics. Got to improvise, man. Got to improvise. Yeah. You got to so. get what you get. So in all this heyday of this stuff and the touring and the craziness and all that stuff, you never you never dipped into drugs. You never like that that beast never followed you. I. I've made reference to my family. Uh, my dad and my mom were my best friends, and my dad especially. He he took. Um, I'm trying. If I can be half as good, you know, with my kids as he mm-hmm. was with 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 me and my my sister and I. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things he did uh, long before I really got heavy into music, um, he was an electrician, and he, one Saturday he said, "Hey, uh, let's go for a milkshake." And mm-hmm. I said, "Yeah, okay, let's go." Mm-hmm. Hopped in the car with him, and he drove by a hospital. He said, I put all the lights in here. He said, I want to show you something. Hmm. So I was like, oh, okay, you know, if I got to waste a couple minutes here before we get the milkshake, you know, yeah. no big deal. Yeah. Well, he said hello to some people in the entrance. I remember going up an elevator. I remember coming to some floor. And then there was a another person he talked to. And I see like a kind of a mesh kind of uh, gate kind yeah. of thing that we had to go through. Mm-hmm. And he took me to a room uh, from the outside and looked in first, and then he lifted me up, and there was a guy in a straight jacket throwing up, uh-huh. convulsing. Oh! And I said, "Dad, what's wrong with that guy?" And he said, "Well, son, that he's he's on a he's done a drug called heroin. He's going through a withdrawal." And he said, "I know that's kind of tough to see, sis, but I want you to, you know, people will talk to you about doing drugs, and I want you to know that this is the end result sometimes when you get into heavier drugs." Dang. Man, it. it it really stayed with me. Yeah. How old were you when this happened? Like About 10, yeah. 10, 9 or 10. And years later, when I was first coming up in college, when I was starting to get some record sessions actually in Chicago, mm-hmm. I had a friend who, who remained nameless, but he was somebody who I really looked up to, got me on some sessions. And he had a pretty bad cocaine habit. And he yeah. lost his wife and family and ended up committing suicide. Yeah. So you put those two things together mm-hmm. and you, it makes you take pause. A little yeah. bit, mm-hmm. and so no, I'm social pot smoke. I didn't show you how much pot I've done. I've never mm-hmm. bought it. Okay. Yeah, so no, it, it kind of passed me. Mm-hmm. Um, and believe me, I was with people who, you know, all the guys from Toto. Yeah, you know, just putting hundred thousand dollar a year habits for a while there. And unfortunately, they've all kind of collectively suffered afterwards, mm-hmm. including Jeff, who Jeff Picaro, who mm-hmm. I was the best drummer I've ever worked with. Yeah, you know. Uh, lost his life later, um, so I think the things kept reminding me. Mm-hmm. Watch it when you tread here, yeah. Because you could easily with these high end tours. Mm-hmm. I saw guys, young kids that would start a tour, and by the end of the tour, they were hooked. Yeah, they were getting everything free. Mm-hmm. People yeah. would throw parties. You know, mm-hmm. um, when I was with Gino, there was a cult following. Gino would sell out, and he would always sell about maybe. 350,000 records and, until he had his hit mm-hmm. single. And they would know us. They would have pictures from the record of us, and people would choose us to be their, their band member to, mm-hmm. you know, Kansas City. Is, man, Kansas City was a great place to play. They mm-hmm. really appreciated musical acts out there. Hmm. Um, they would give you anything you want. Yeah. You know, but they, kind of shepherd, they would they would be you know your concierge to life as soon as you got into Kansas City. And then, you know, worst thing for like a you know twenty three year old kid yeah. you know thinking that that 
you know. All I know is I was in college and I was one of, you know, 50 to 100 guys at the local pub all trying to hit on the one good-looking girl, mm-hmm. you know, and getting nowhere. And then suddenly you're on tour mm-hmm. and you actually start buying your hype, but you could you could be as ugly as Godzilla and somebody's mm-hmm. going to come on up because they want to be part of the event. Mm-hmm. And it just it's a you know, it's not reality right. and you you get further down the line and you start growing up and you realize, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'm not that awesome. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, yeah. you have to put everything in perspective. Yeah. Well, that's, so that's why you're still here and that's why you're still doing it. What, what are you working on lately? You know, it was a great end of the year. I had about four different completely, this is what I love about what I do is the, the, the so diverse. Um, I, I worked with Ariana Grande on her first record, and I got her second single. I did, mm. did strings on it, and then I played some keyboards and did synth, synth arrangements for uh, cuts that she did for Christmas cuts. Mm-hmm. Okay, So both of those, and she went platinum. I'm about to get a platinum record nice. again for the first nice. time in a couple of years, so I'm happy about that. We're starting another record with her right now. Mm-hmm. I'm writing with the team. There's, there's a couple different people, so I, I'm, I'm hoping to get a song on this. Uh there was an artist by the name of Landau, um, not Carizian, Car- uh-huh. uh, who won America's Got Talent. Um, was it last year? So he did his first record at Capitol, and we did it in in a real cool way. It was direct to multi track, meaning that everybody, background singers, him, mm-hmm. everybody performed right, right there. Filmed. He was interviewed by CNN. That was a great mm-hmm. uh, session. Um, let's see. Um, oh, I worked. I have been working, continue to work with um, Des Money. That's Eddie Money's son. Mm, cool. And this kid is an amazing talent. Just great singer, great writer. A friend of mine's producing it, so I've been doing uh, piano and uh, string arranging for that. Uh, and then most recently, um, I just worked with a an artist from the Netherlands uh, just weeks ago. I teamed back up with my friend Pat Leonard. Who produced some of Madonna's records, mm-hmm. and they're they're living together now. And uh, she is an amazing concert pianist, doing serious repertoire, doing mm-hmm. all the Rachmaninoff repertoire. Wow. I oh. mean, the Rock Two, Rock Three, the hardest yeah. piano pieces ever devised. Yeah, practices six hours a day, and she's beautiful, and she's she's beautiful inside too. Mm-hmm. Very almost innocent. Yeah. Okay. And you could tell from some of these pieces, she she wrote a body of work with Pat. That is serious and classically oriented, uh, but is original as opposed to just interpreting mm-hmm. classical music. Yeah, aping you know different composers and that kind of vibe. Yeah. So he came to me and he said, "Look, I want you to orchestrate this for. We'll have a we'll have a decent small budget, but mm-hmm. we're going to do five cuts and we're going to use twenty. I think it was twenty seven musicians, string section, um, French horns, trombone, and, and woodwinds." Um, we want you to orchestrate and conduct that, but we're going to do this completely free. Yeah. Uh, meaning that there are no clicks. Yeah. And uh, we'll put you on a podium above her, uh-huh. and you've got to learn her pieces well enough so that the certain key notes that she's hitting to start a phrase, you're conducting to that. Yeah. Which is a little scary. But, yeah, yeah. you know, I can tell you for film, by the way, here's something to do. And it sounds like you were doing it when you were looking at picture, you'd start at a certain point and you weren't worrying about a click. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. The stuff that works best sometimes in film is free. Yeah. It can't be metronomic. It has to flow based on the way the emotions change and emotions don't change and quantize, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, and so that's what we did. We, we had 
four sessions, four three-hour sessions. We went one hour overtime, but we got five. Some of these pieces were incredibly complex. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a piece called the the conversation, and it was a and she would she would do this lovely thing for the these are hardened studio musicians, you know, that generally are looking at their Rolexes, Mm -hmm. you know. But she would describe what what happens in this piece and um, each piece and uh, this one was starts out with a a plaintiff um, piano statement and basically what she was saying it was a conversation she had with her Russian um, piano piano coach Mm -hmm. who is very aggravated that she's writing original material and thinks that she could should continue her career as Mm -hmm. the the premier you know um Concert pianist, of, pianist of of the Rachmaninoff yeah. repertoire, and that that's that should be your, her her life and career commitment. Mm. Yeah, and she doesn't want to do that. She's yeah. had a taste of freedom. She's yeah. had a taste of wow, this is great. This is difficult, mm. and yet you know. So it it starts out with this, and then there's kind of a walk up that leads into this. Five, it, it, it's very odd meter. It's a five eight going sometimes to six eight to mm-hmm. four four back. Incredibly fast, like one two three four five, 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 one two three four five. Sometimes she'd be playing amazingly fast, and then she'd kind of slow down. Mm-hmm. And I'm fighting to get downbeats. I had to yeah. had to conduct it um, just with a down and then a back back mm-hmm. up on the four five. So it'd be like one two three four five, one two three four mm-hmm. five, one two three four five. Moving. Um, and we pulled it off. We had to cut it in a couple of different sections. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when you're flying close to the sun. It's like, hey, can I cut this? You yeah. know, I'm, and I, it's one thing to, to, you know, conduct easy four fours or stuff mm. you've worked on for a long time. But yeah. I literally had about a, a week and a half to do five mm-hmm. orchestrations, and and then study her piano part. Yeah, uh, and it, it, I know it, it came out really well. Everybody was very happy with it. We're gonna probably do the second half when she comes back from her concert tour in. Um, in Europe, and and the the plan is to submit this for full symphonic uh, ensembles, you know, yeah. around the world. Uh, so then it'll get bumped up from twenty six to eighty five pieces. Great, wow! So uh, and then I'm greenlit on a movie that's gonna gonna start in about two months. They're in editing right now. Uh, so you know, any time I can go from a pop song to mm-hmm. to uh, a film situation to mm-hmm. working with a recent artist that that. You know, one America's Got Talent to something classical. Man, it's mm-hmm. it's really enjoyable. I I live for that. Awesome, man. Well, I want to thank you for coming in, man. Man, it's 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 always great to hang with you. And uh, let's not forget Sundays; they're always a fun hang. Absolutely, too. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's uh, the ragtag of under the breath joke telling. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Thanks, man. I mean, those are some stories for the ages. Those those go down in the annals of rock and roll, of music. Come on. It was incredible to hear stories like that. It's incredible to know Bill Myers. Definitely check out his music. And you know what? Whether you want to or not, you're checking out his music because the guy's been friggin' everywhere. I want to thank you, Bill, if you're listening, for coming in and having the talk with me, for sitting down. Afterwards, we went down to the studio and uh, plunked out a tune that we're working on together. He, uh... He knows more chords than I do. He makes me want to be a better man. I gotta work on that impression. 
I have a better Jack Nicholson in me. You make me want to be... I can't do it now. No. Anyway, I digress. Thank you guys so much for spreading word about the show. It's growing more and more. People are getting interested. I'm getting tweets and emails every day. New listeners. It's exciting. So again, thank you for spreading the word. And as always, you can go to sharkbrainpodcast.com to get any and all episodes that we have of this. You can go to jakenewton.com to see when I'm playing live. And uh, hey, like I said before in the intro, uh, maybe you want to watch JBC on uh, March 4th and see uh, yours truly. Shooting guns! You know, being a tough guy! Kablamo! It's the multifaceted life of the artist. Gotta get it when you can. Thank you guys, from the bottom of my heart. Love your friends, and be well. Thank you.